So hello again and welcome to the 13th session now in our Accessibility Insights series where AbilityNet's Head of Digital Inclusion, Robin Christofferson, hosts a monthly online chat with individuals who are each working to improve digital accessibility and digital inclusion. And this month he's chatting to Richard Morton, who is Head of Accessibility at the UK Government's Central Digital and Data Office, which is CDDO and which uh, monitors and enforces UK legislation on web and app accessibility. Um, I'm Annie Mannion and I'm Digital Communications Manager at AbilityNet and I'll be running you through today's session. So just to go through a few bits of housekeeping, um, we have live captions provided by MyClearText and you can turn on the captions using the CC option on the control panel. Uh, we do have additional captions available by, via streamtext.net forward slash player question mark events equals ability net and then slides are available at slideshare.net forward slash ability net and also on our website at abilitynet.org.uk forward slash cddo dash webinar. Um, if you have any technical issues and you need to leave early don't worry you'll receive an email in a couple of days time with the recording the transcript and the slides. And then depending on how you joined the webinar, um, you'll find a Q&A window. So if you'd like to ask Richard or Robin any questions, um, do drop those into the Q&A area for them to address. And they'll do that after today's session in a follow-up blog on our website at um, cddo-webinar again. Um, we also have a feedback survey that you'll be directed to at the end, which asks you to tell us about any future topics you'd like us to cover in our webinars. Okay, so that's all from me for now. So over to Robin and Richard. Fabulous. Thank you, Annie. Uh, Richard, welcome. Thanks, Robin. Thanks, <laughs> That's a great intro. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for, for uh, being willing to uh, be grilled for the next half an hour. So first question, um, we ask to everyone, cheesy question, but, you know, uh, gets the ball rolling. What is your... A drink of choice for to get us through this next half an hour yeah sure um you know i should probably say something interesting like a soy chai latte or something but or with marshmallows but my usual boring answer is just coffee it doesn't have to be good or you know it can be good or bad it doesn't have to be that good but actually for this sort of thing i just drink water but <laughs> so really boring answer but yeah not coffee, at all coffee's my hot drink of choice yeah and I suspect you've switched to water during this sort of thing for the same reason that I've actually got chamomile tea rather than normal tea or coffee, because, yeah, you don't want to have to um, need a comfort break, even though it's only half an hour. So, yeah, great. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much indeed. Um, first question. Now, these questions are very similar. Regular listeners will um, they'll be quite familiar to them, but obviously the context changes each time. And uh, so the responses are often very different and always interesting. So for you, uh, first question, what do you think in your opinion has changed most in the area of accessibility or digital inclusion in the last 10 year years? Or, you know, feel free to focus on more recent times as well. But, you know, over the last decade, an awful lot has changed, hasn't it, in this area? Yeah, it's it certainly has. I mean, I've been in this industry for probably 15 years or so I've been in IT for a lot longer than that but in sort of accessibility for that length of time and I've seen a definite shift um, I think there's still 
long way to go. But there's been a shift in understanding towards designing things, making things user-centered around user needs rather than needs of the organization. Um, particularly in government and large organizations like banks, retailers, they've done a lot of work in this area. But it is still quite patchy. There's still a long way to go. You know, I think I think things like WK made a big difference with that. But I think there's there's a lot long way to go with things like internal systems and things like that. So yeah, the landscape has shifted, but I think there's a there's a lot more still to be done. Um, it's going to keep me busy till I retire anyway. <laughs> Surely, uh, same for you, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although, um, I mean, I've been in the in this area for 25 years, and uh, I'm. I was thinking the other day, oh, there's another at least 15 to go. That's quite a daunting <laughs> prospect, but anyway, um, much as I love it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, WCAG, you mentioned there, we should probably flag that's the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. They're moving on all the time, aren't they, to embrace, you know, new technologies and having a focus on end user testing um, more than you know the technical compliance. Uh, so that it, they're moving in the right direction. Yeah. Absolutely. So how do you think then, and I think you've touched upon some of this, but the major sort of advancements that we've seen in the last 10 years around the mainstreaming of inclusion and the recognition that it's important, how do you think this shift has been achieved? And by all means, talk about government, uh, you know, policies or the impact of government, but, you know, by all means, broaden it out as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, just touching on your points about the web content, accessibility guidelines, I think they, they've made a big difference in the sense that the, the version one of those came out in 1999, version two, 2018, it became a much more um, technology neutral set of guidelines. It was very specific to web and web technologies originally. It's much more neutral, although in practice, it's pretty much only applied in the sense of web technologies. It's become much more neutral. I think that does help. That has improved things, make people think about things more about the needs rather than the technical stuff. Although the guidelines are still, you know, difficult to understand and difficult to use, um, they need a lot of explanation. But I think other things that have made a big difference are things like the, the Equality Act, which is just slightly more than 10 years old. Um, again, help make, make people more aware of protected characteristics, including disability. It wasn't new in the sense that the Disability Discrimination Acts, which preceded it, came another 15 years prior to that so about the time you started probably Robin in that case about 25 yeah. years old then um <laughs> and it, it was embedded but I think it helped raise awareness among people that you know all these all these protected characteristics are important and uh, you know I think again there's still a long way to go and sometimes people talk more about some aspects than others but it has raised awareness and I do think, it, you know, I think it's fair to say creation of the Government Digital Service and shortly afterwards GovUK started to make think people, people think that, uh, you know, accessible digital services are, are essential, not just possible, but essential. And there is, you know, there's no re good reason why most boundaries or barriers to access exist, um, you know, before the creation of GovUK, there was work done to make things more digitally accessible in government and local and central government but it was kind of sporadic it wasn't a sort of embedded in the the whole ethos if you like it was brought, brought into that and that's that's spread around of course it's a simplica simplification of course but um there is still a lot of legacy code legacy design still around 
So, um, and, and still there is little understanding of how to build and design accessible information and services. But I think, you know, those sort of things have been big factors in that. Um, and there is a, you know, there's a, a growing movement of equality and equity in, in design that's really helping to move things on in this area. I mean, gov.uk is, you know, pretty good now across its many, you know, um, incarnations or kind of sub subsections, etc. It's brought it all together and you can be pretty confident that when you go there to do what you need to do or find out what you need to find out, then, you know, you're going to have a good experience. And I think, like you hinted at there, um, it coincided with the government being much more kind of vocal and out there when it comes to talking about accessibility and um, obviously they've always championed it with legislation etc but um, you know I think that both the gov.uk team and uh, you know different sectors as a whole have come to the realization that it's not necessarily about a goal it's about a journey and you never actually kind of get there on a on a, an app or a website of any size because you know it's just really really hard to have squeaky clean compliance across every page or corner of it so um it's about real life accessibility and making sure that people can um have good experiences particularly around the you know high priority user journeys and services particularly in digital government that people need to do you know particularly with the kind of focus on digital that we're seeing these days yeah, I mean, I think UK is an interesting one because it's it's a massive um, system. It's hundreds of thousands of pages, many services, but actually the services are um, autonomous in a sense that, you know, if you go to, for example, renew your passport, you go through a UK page, but you will then get onto a service that is owned and managed by home office. So they have their own teams, digital teams, dealing with all this sort of thing. So it is a complex, complex environment, if you like. Uh, it's not just one organisation, it's lots of organisations. And part of my role is, is working across government to try and help these organisations work together, learn together, but without sort of dictating, you know, you, you must do this in this exact way, that there isn't that sort of level of, there is a level of autonomy amongst the organisations and departments. So it's it's quite an interesting setup if you like and uh, you know as I said there's still a lot of legacy services around things don't always change very quickly but we're always trying to improve things yeah well you're doing a good job <laughs> in trying to bring all that together <laughs> what a job wow well, that's quite a job um cool so let's sort of bring it a bit closer to um recent times then so obviously covid let's talk about that um your home working at the moment talking about you know hybrid working within uh, your teams uh, going forward um, how has covid home working reshaped your life your working life your teams and also you know government thinking and strategy uh, and how's that going to impact us going forward is that going to be a, a long lasting legacy with this laser focus on digital yeah, I think, you know, it's, there's a lot of interesting things going to come out of this. Um, I think, you know, one thing that I've learned or that we've learned is that given enough motivation, many things are possible that just weren't, th weren't thought possible or just weren't thought about before in terms of uh, remote working. And that, that's created some controversy as well, because people are saying, well, why, why wasn't this done before? You know, why is it suddenly, you know, we can fix this now? Um, 
but that's sometimes how things happen, isn't it? You know, being locked down last year and much of this year has meant people have had to do that. And it's it's been really interesting. We've we've adapted ways of working. We've worked managed well as a team. We had to sort of do lots of different things. We had to have more um, sort of meetings than usual in a sense early on, just to sort of make sure people were kept in touch and uh, and weren't feeling neglected and that. But different patterns of working have come about. And what's interesting for me is. I've worked with people who I've never met face to face. And in fact, some people have moved on to other teams and things like that. And that feels really weird because I think once I start going back in the office, I start to see people and think, well, did I know them before? Or did I, did I actually meet them before? Or is this new? You know, it's this whole new, um, you know, etiquette to be uh, <clears throat> navigated, if you like, in that sense. Um, but certainly we've learned that, you know, ways of working can be adapted. And that modern infrastructure makes a lot of these things possible. You know, you couldn't have done a lot of this 10 years ago. You know, video conferencing was around 10 years ago. Audio over internet was, sorry, telephone over internet was available 10 years ago. But there just wasn't the capacity and the, the ability to do it at scale. So it certainly led to a lot of learning on things like that. But there have been some, uh, you know, negatives as well that people... Um, Mental health can can suffer if people are you know alone a lot or if there's meeting fatigue. Um, you know, one of my pet peeves is meetings which never start on time, and that's got worse because people have back to back meetings. You know, you don't have to be in the, physically in the same place. Uh, you know, you don't have to be in the right place for the meeting. You can be where you are in your front room or wherever you're working from. Um, so there's challenges as well as benefits to it. And I think we'll learn a lot from it. And yeah, as you mentioned about hybrid working, I think there'll be a lot of going back to uh, people going back to the office, but probably not as much as they did before. You know, some people want to be back in the office full time. Many people don't. And most people, you know, want something in between, I think. Um, but there are other challenges as well. Things like noisy rooms, you know, mm-hmm. we had problems with rooms with only three walls, um, which was part of the sort of open plan office environment. That can be difficult when you've got a room with say half a dozen people and one person working remotely. Um, it's it's quite difficult. So I hope, I'm hoping we'll try and move towards a more sort of remote friendly approach where people talk about um, one person being remote, then everyone's remote. Um, and that, you know, that may have difficulties, but it, it kind of means everyone is using a headset or everyone is using a laptop. And it, there's going to be challenges with that, you know, because you, you might lose some of that face-to-face stuff. Um, but I think it's important and it helps inclusion and particularly, you know, not just around um, the fact that people are working away they're separately, but the fact that some people are introverts, some are extroverts, uh, it can be difficult to involve everyone in a discussion, in a conversation. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, there's, there's a lot to be learned. And it's going to be really interesting because the teams I work with, for example, are, are kind of a bit distributed. They're not just working from home. They're based in different offices as well. So it's not going to make a lot of sense for everyone to go in um, the office on different days. It's, it's more important that if they're going in some of the week, then they probably need to go in the same days or whatever. Um, and maybe switch locations occasionally, meet up occasionally, that sort of thing. I think it's, yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, and we're, we're only just going to be starting to think about how people return to the office now. Obviously, plans plans will be put in place. They've, they've already made plans, but I don't know how that will pan out in the next few weeks now that announcements have been made. 
do you think that remote working as you know members of the the you know technical teams within government um you know that's always been seen as um a, a viable technological solution but other departments other you know less techy teams uh you know now now get it basically and um are, are for it whereas before it was you know there was it takes a long time to do things within any organization but within government in particular and if anything you know we've learned anything over the last 18 months or so it's that you can actually do things like you said right at the beginning if you've got enough focus and uh um incentive then you can concertina those timelines right down and and really get things moving and changing for the better so yeah yeah really really interesting i think i mean i think there are still other challenges like uh, interoperability where people are using different tools, you know, we're using Zoom today. Sometimes we use Google tools, sometimes we use uh, Microsoft Teams and it, it can be quite difficult switching between those tools and just remember, rem remembering where the mute button is, for example, that sort of thing. Um, it's, and, and it's never gonna be the case that everyone just uses one tool. So these are all things that we have to sort of tackle um, long-term, I think, yeah. Yeah, some UI consistency would be good. And for me, some hotkey consistency. So yeah, yeah it's um, the hotkeys are like command, shift, A and V for audio and video in Zoom, but they're M and O in, uh, don't ask, in Teams. But yeah, so um, brilliant. Let's talk about government strategy then and how you see it impacting, let's say mobile, because obviously the the deadline, the last deadline associated with the public sector regulations has just zoomed by to do with mobile yeah. applications. You mentioned that, you know, there are fewer of those um, than, than websites, but still. So yeah, public sector regulations has really focused minds. Um, and also future platforms. What's the government's strategy, you know, in a future facing uh, way about the proliferation of digital going forward? Well, uh, I, you know, I talked before we started actually about mobile apps a bit, and I'll sort of say that again, really. There, there aren't many central government mobile apps, native apps, that is. There's a lot of uh, mobile usage. but So making mobile apps can be more challenging. Um, they're built in different ways. The, the differences between the Android and iOS platforms are quite significant. So, but there are teams doing great work in making their apps accessible. Um, I think the bigger factor though, one of the bigger factors is mobile usage generally. Um, the majority of digital interactions with the public sector are probably now through mobile devices. I know mm -hmm. I heard quote, uh, quotes that it was 60% plus in the um, in local authorities. And I'm sure, you know, I imagine that figure has gone up in the last year or so as well. Um, it, it just continues to rise as more and more people have predominantly mobile devices many people don't even have a laptop or a desktop machine i know that you know it's shocked to find out that most millennials don't have a printer for example and i think how can you live without a printer but many people do um and, i'm not big um, on paper just saying <laughs> yeah well i'm, I'm not but there's occasions when i need to uh yeah i'd like love to get away from it but it's made yeah, so it, but yeah i think you know the, the sort of mobile first approach people talk about designing for mobile first that's starting to be really important and um you know if you design services in a responsive way that work well on both mobile and other devices that that really works well i mean there's there's a sort of blurred distinction between things like tablets and laptops even though they work in different ways you know a laptop is a mobile device really but it's not treated as a mobile device um yeah and there's going to be other challenges around 
other platforms obviously people are looking at things like artificial intelligence and um virtual realities uh, virtual reality situations and things like that mm -hmm. i haven't been involved in much of that but there, there's always work going on in those areas but to be honest i think you know there's still a lot of work to be done to deal with the current platforms if you like and mobile being you know the biggest one in terms of not just native apps but in terms of responsive apps so i think i think there's still a lot of work to be done in that area so you think that there's still quite a few central government and maybe local authority websites that aren't mobile responsive there's not many I, I don't know about um how many are responsive or not responsive some of the old legacy apps aren't legacy websites and things aren't uh i think most new, new ones are but you know there's going to be a lot of lot of organizations who are still using um very sort of desktop oriented designs and things like that and you, you know you, you've only got to go online to find some of these things occasionally um it's not, you know, it's not always the end of the world, but it does make things a lot easier to, to use and to make more accessible. Um, there are ways around ways around these things, but there's a long way to go with that, yeah. Tooling, I think, is hugely important. We could have another whole conversation on that. Apologies about the barking. He's a guide dog, but I think they trained him as a guard dog by mistake. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> whenever the doorbell goes. Um, so, yeah, let's uh, talk about, um, we mentioned up at the front, Annie said that, you know, you're, in the department which is responsible for reviewing you know monitoring and potentially reporting and even um, enforcing the legislation about you know compliance uh, across public sector organizations and potentially broader afield so what's the sort of levels of activity can you tell us anything give us any insights about you know how many websites mobile apps etc you're reviewing um a month or whatever and you know what the sort of future uh activity would look like from an external point of view you know would we get to hear about your activities and which organizations have been audited etc sure yeah just a bit of context first which is the function was within government digital service gds um it moved to cddo central digital and data office in April, when that organisation was created, it's it's still a bit of a, a problem explaining this to people because many people that haven't heard of CDDO or don't know what it means. And I, I keep getting congratulations messages in LinkedIn and things, even though I, I haven't changed really. It's just um, changed the name. Um, so CDDO, yeah, does run the monitoring of um, uh, <clears throat> the public sector bodies' accessibility regulations. Uh, we've assessed over 360 websites to date. Sampling is done at, at random across um, a range of uh, domain names on public sector top level domains such as GovUK, AC.UK, NHSUK. Uh, so it's not just what you might think of as government, it's, it's the whole of the public sector. Mm -hmm. um, it, so it includes things like academia and um, the NHS and transport, public transport services, things like that. But we are prioritizing larger public websites, public sector websites, so central government sites that aren't on gov.uk, because we've already done a lot of work on gov.uk, um, but looking at ones that aren't hosted on gov.uk, also um, councils, so local authorities, uh, central NHS websites, higher education and further education. There's, there's sort of focus areas, if you like. 
Um, they, they, they've gone through, you know, the, there's a lot of tests already been done that will continue. And there's a mix of simplified tests and detailed tests. Um, we plan to sort of report publicly on these by the end of this year on what, what's, what the situation is. So what sites that haven't, sites that have received a report but haven't responded or haven't fixed things properly though that will get you know that will get publicized um and it's 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 going well there's a lot you know it's certainly raising awareness of the need to do this stuff one of the slight frustrations we get is we often get asked you know what what do we need to do what's the minimum we need to do what's what's compliance and I'm always trying to encourage people to go beyond the compliance, but it can be quite difficult because people have budgets, people have tight timescales, particularly when it came to the, um, you know, the major deadlines of 2019 September and 2020 September for new and existing websites. That was a big focus. But now I want, you know, I'm trying to get people to think we're not just doing this for the regulations, we're doing this because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's also a requirement anyway under the, the Equality Act to make things accessible, to not discriminate. And it's also a requirement under the public sector uh, equality duty, which is part of the Equality Act, for public sector bodies to make sure they not just do this stuff, but they do it proactively in the sense that, um, you know, they can't just rely on someone complaining and saying, I can't access your information. Um, they, they do have to provide that facility, but they, they can't just work on that basis. Uh, and they have to provide reasonable adjustments. They have to provide alternative formats, all those sort of things. So it's the, the work continues. Um, the legislation will change slightly just to sort of remove our um, links with the European Union, which it was part of, it came out of European legislation. But it, other than that, it's going to continue in the same way for the foreseeable future. Obviously, things can change. Do you know if there's any plans to broaden out the legislation to adopt the European Accessibility Act, uh, which, you know, applies this um, new level of energy and focus on enforcement to the other sectors as well? Unfortunately, it missed the Brexit guillotine. No, at the moment, there's no plans to do that. Um, yeah, so cool. I don't have any other detail on that, but there are no yeah. plans to do that. Crystal ball. Fantastic. Brilliant. So, um, We'll just wrap up then. We're rapidly running out of time. Thank you so much. At the end, we always talk about a comment that has come from last month's guest. So last month, it was Larry Goldberg, Head of Accessibility at Verizon Media. And he wanted to pass on his support, thinks it's brilliant what you're doing. Um, His comments were around how often, particularly in the US, uh, organizations and people aren't keen on hands-on hands-on approach by government Um, but he said you know in this particular instance it's really important and it's definitely you know bearing fruit so it's it's brilliant what you're doing and it's you know necessary it seems to make organizations really sit up and uh, take notice have you got anything to add to to Larry's comment or in response to that yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I really want to do is, is to be able to reach out more to the private sector, the charity sector, people who aren't directly responsible, who aren't, you know, obligated by the public sector bodies, accessibility regulations, but are linked in and, and trying to help them understand the ways they need to make things accessible. I mean, I mentioned at the beginning, I think part of the problem we have is internal systems and tools are quite inaccessible. So there's a lot that the private sector need to do to meet the needs of government. You know, they may not have a legal responsibility to do anything 
particular to meet a particular standard, um, but they do have a responsibility to ensure their services are accessible. And they, you know, if they want to stay in the market, they've got to respond to these sort of needs and changes. So yeah, people don't like government leading in a sense, but we're, we're trying to lead in a positive way um, by example, by creating a culture and, and, you know, we have communities around accessibility and other organisations like the BBC have done a lot around um, accessibility champions. Mm -hmm. there's, there's lots of good work going on and, you know, we want to sort of spread the, spread the good news about that. Brilliant. And we should add that, you know, the, those other sectors, uh, corporate and charity, if they want to have any doing dealings with Europe, then, you know, they need to really consider accessibility as well. Obviously it's a legal requirement and it's the right thing to do already here in the UK, but still, you know, additional uh, incentive there. Thank you yeah. so much. So next month it's 95% confirmed. I'm not going to say who it is just in case, but um, so talking about the charity sector, it's going to be a leading uh, accessibility uh, person in the charity sector. So in light of that, is there anything that you want to pass on to this mystery uh, person? Yeah, I guess just following on from what I just said, um, I'd like to ask a question about how, how they're going about building a culture of accessibility in their organisation. And, you know, do they have any practical tips or lessons learned from that? Good. Nice. Brilliant. Um, thank you so much, Richard. I really, really appreciate it. Keep up the good work. And I'm really looking forward with interest to any reporting that comes out later in the year, like you say, about which organisations, um, uh, you know, the level of compliance across public sector organisations. That's going to be interesting. Thank you very much. Right. Thanks very much. I'll pass back to Annie. Yeah, um, just thank you so much, Richard and Robin. Um, we've had loads of questions that we hope to answer online in the next few days. Um, so you'll receive an email uh, with the link to access them. So just um, finally, just a bit more information that might be of interest to you. Um, we have a range of um, training um, sessions on accessibility, which you can find out more about at abilitynet.org.uk forward slash training. You can use a 10% off discount code available to registrants of our webinars, which is AbilityNet Webinar 1010. And some of the training courses that we have available for various roles include uh, coming up this Thursday, how to begin your own accessibility testing. And then on the 14th of July, um, PDF accessibility. The 15th of July, it's InDesign accessibility. And then on the 21st and the 28th of July, we have new um, workplace focused uh, workshops called Tech Powered Inclusive Recruitment and Tech Powered Inclusive Onboarding as well. And then you can also sign up to our e-newsletter for the latest announcements about digital accessibility. Uh, you can visit our YouTube channel and also download our podcast. And then we have a suite of accessibility services to suit all types of organizations. And then finally, just don't forget about our next webinars. So as Robin mentioned, our um, next Accessibility Insights session is on Tuesday, the 10th of August. And before that, we have the Business Case for Accessibility, which is on Tuesday, the 20th of July. So thanks again, Richard and Robin and everyone who's joined us. And please do complete the feedback form that you'll be directed to at the end. And we'll be in touch with you soon. Bye, everyone. <laughs>